Welcome to the Homeschool Together podcast. Where one working mom and a stay-at-home dad help you navigate the nuts and bolts of the growing and dynamic world of homeschooling. With a focus on early learners. Like me! All the ins and outs of building and maintaining your homeschool life. Homeschool! Find out tips and tricks to make things like this easier. I'm reading! And ultimately, enjoy educating your kids. And what's that last thing? Have fun together! Did I do good, Daddy? (laughs) Yeah, you did, sweetie. Good job. Hello and welcome to Homeschool Together. We're going to take a little bit of a departure from our normal interviews. We're going to be interviewing a game designer and game creator and game inventor um, on the podcast today. It was really fun. So before we begin, head down to the show notes. You're going to see all the links to her website, Instagram, all the fun things that connect with with Kim, um, and also links to our social media, YouTube, all the fun things. But we had a great interview with Kim Vandenbroek. Today. Yeah, she yeah. was really awesome. She's a game a game inventor, designer, which is awesome. And she runs thegameisle.com, which is a game review website as well. Yeah. Uh, if you're, if, you're in, if you're into games, you're getting into game schooling, if you're going to be part of the game schooling co-op summer, and you really want to like kind of see behind you know, behind the curtain and, and, and watch, watch Oz work, you know, like she has a lot of great insight. We, man, she was fascinating. We had a fun discussion about the games, the game industry, a lot of the, the science behind games and the thinking behind it. And And the nuances of developing a game and, and, you know, getting that, you know, getting that into the hands of a publisher who can then get it in the hands of kids and families. Yeah, the process to get to it. And yeah, so if if you're at all interested in in games as we love tabletop games, uh, this was just so fascinating to to see kind of the workings behind it. Yeah, when you see these type of things, it makes you appreciate the work behind the things you hold in your hand. I, I so did. And I was really taken with everything that she had to say about the process of how do you go about designing a game? I know that, you know, Haba has their game design contest going on right now and lots of kids are always in developing their own games and things and just hearing the the process that she uses to go about it. I thought it was super uh, fascinating. Uh, and so I think this is a really fun, different interview, taking a little bit of a departure from homeschool today to but we did bring jump it, into games. But we did bring it back a little bit here and there, you know, back to homeschool, the idea of games and learning and everything. So yeah, I think even though it might be a slightly different than what we normally produce and would normally expect, I think it's really cool insight to something that we feel is very important in our homeschool environment, which is gaming. It's just such a great learning tool, right? Even if, even if games aren't your thing as a family, games are something that kids naturally gravitate towards because they gravitate towards play. And and it's just another form of play. And they're, and they're in a lot of our curriculums, like our right start math. We play games every week. Right. I mean, they're not the same kind of games we would normally play, but, but yes, they are games because learning through play is so powerful. And that's why we believe so much in games. So even if games aren't like necessarily, you know, know you're super into games as a family i still think this is an incredibly interesting interview and just to just to understand the background behind those because they are such powerful teaching tools absolutely so So let's get into the interview with kim vandenbrook hi kim thanks so much for joining us today oh hey not a problem at all thanks for having me 
So can you tell us uh, and our listeners a little bit about yourself, your backstory and, and how your career kind of moved into game design and invention? And I'm going to listen with rapt attention. <laughs> okay. So um, my name is Kim Vandenbrook. I'm based out of Chicago. Um, and I didn't really ever transition into this. Um, I went to college and got my industrial design degree from the University of Illinois down in Urbana-Champaign. And I needed a job. And during our career fair, there was um, a toy and game invention firm, and it sounded far more exciting than any of the other companies that were there. So I gave it a shot and they hired me, which was awesome. <laughs> and um, <laughs> they actually hired me to do girls toys. And that didn't really work out. I gravitated more towards games because I grew up in a, like a, a gaming family, a family that really enjoyed playing games. My mother was a math teacher. And so she really enjoyed teaching us through games. Yeah. And so when they closed after about four years of me being there, I thought about going and doing something else, but I just, I couldn't leave. I was enjoying it too much. So I just started off on my own, which has been amazing. So I've been doing this for in total for almost 20 years. So maybe, you know, we have a lot of homeschooling families and they've got kids and you yeah. know we're always thinking about degrees. You know, what is the design degree? What was that like? Um, what, what were the type of things you were studying and how did that feed into doll design? <laughs> <laughs> so industrial design is, um, I always joke that it's kind of like graphic design, but three-dimensional. So you're talking more about um, the form of a three-dimensional product. A lot of times you're talking about the ergonomics, how a person interacts with it. Uh, and it, you can end up doing anything from like designing medical equipment to designing office furniture, lighting, all the way to toys and, toys and games. And so for me, the side of it that I liked was really coming up with solutions to problems. Some other people were really great at form studies and coming up with the most beautiful thing to hold and to use. And I, frankly, that was not my strong suit. Um, and so I was much more into this, like inventing and problem solving and coming up with these solutions to these crazy problems. And so I sort of gravitated more towards the invention side of things, whereas some people gravitate more towards the design side of things. Um, and the university I went to was really great because we didn't have a particular focus. There are some schools like um, FIT, which is the Fashion Institute of Technology, they do specifically toy and game design. And then there are places that do specifically car design and, and are very um, specific to the different field that they're gonna go into. Um, whereas since I had this more general background, I got to study all sorts of different things. We had all sorts of crazy projects along the way. And so when I, I was looking for that job, I had lots of opportunities in different areas. Um, but really that toy and game invention, I was like, well, that sounds fun. <laughs> like something that I could really enjoy doing versus um, doing lots of sketches on office chairs. Yeah, it sounds kind of dream jobby. I mean, <laughs> it was well, it was one of those jobs that I didn't know existed, you know? I mean, you don't really think when you pick up a toy or a game in the aisle, like, who did this? I'm, you know, when you're much younger. And um, so often it is part of the invention community or the design community that has come up with that. It doesn't necessarily always come from, you know, the manufacturer themselves. They're not always the one coming up with the idea. Oftentimes they're licensing it from someone like me which I think is a really cool thing because then you end up with lots of different ideas instead of just them being come instead of someone just coming up with them in like one room, like one group of people constantly doing it. They're coming from all over the world. So you end up with some great variety. 
That's awesome. You know, my limited experience with the game industry, the the toy industry, uh, was I was in the semiconductor industry, and we were trying to sell technology into the products. Like if you were doing like a you know like a, a guitar, an electric guitar, or something like that for kids, and we were selling product in there. So I was inter, inter, interfacing with a lot of engineers and you know in some respects developers mm-hmm. and stuff. Did you do you see did you see your role as more of an engineering or more visionary when you were at that first company? Oh, de- definitely more visionary. Um, okay. The the engineering side of things is is a part of it. We also had two really great model makers on staff who would help out and had like amazing experience doing mechanisms. That's still part of the process, but it's not just thinking about the mechanism that goes into something. You have to think about the overall experience that a child mm-hmm. or teen is going to have with this particular product and so if you're only thinking about the you know how the mechanism works and you're not thinking about the play pattern or the gameplay itself then you're missing a big part of the user experience so um, as much as like the engineering side of things is important it's definitely not the only thing that we have to think about a a question i always had with you know, people who design games for kids is that you tend to sit in a room full of adults. <laughs> and how do you, how do you make those considerations for children? How, do you do a lot of, you know, play testing? Do you a lot of, do a lot of focus groups? How do you guys get into the mind of my five-year-old who just walked by the door? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a great question. Um, I think I never really hundred percent grew up. So that's probably okay. part of it. Um, so stunted, stunted adults is, is hey, the kind of like a still... job. think about all the cool stuff and want to play with the cool toys so that's definitely part of it but you know at the same time you have to layer on ever so slightly that adult perspective you know because even though the kid's going to say i want it i want it i want it you really have to get through you know the the person that's going to buy it for them most likely and at the same time even before you get to that point, you have to get past the store buyer. And there are all these adults in the way who are between the idea that you have and the end user. And most of those people are adults. So it's this weird balance of like finding something that the kid's going to find absolutely awesome to play with. (laughs) And also recognizing that the adults have to be able to see the coolness in it. Otherwise, it's never going to make it as far as that end user. So you were talking about licensing ideas yeah. and then also there's, you know, in you have in-house people like yourself. How do you guys balance between vision and product line? And are you guys, are you guys always chasing the dragon of we need to make the Cabbage Patch Kit or why can't we invent the Furby? You know, is, is there, how do you guys formulate ideas and how do you pick between winners and losers? Well, so I am an independent, so I am not um, an in-house designer. Those would be the people that are hanging out at like Hasbro coming up with the next awesome idea. Um, I'm, I was part of an invention firm. So again, it was like a large group of outside inventors hanging out together, hoping that together, working together, they would come up with, you know, some awesome stuff. Um, But as an independent, you know, it's just really figuring out what I want to work on. I am one person and some of the larger invention groups out there have the ability to work on tons of different things at the same time because they have lots of Mm -hmm. people for me i just work out what i enjoy and working on Mm -hmm. what i enjoy tends to translate to something good if there's a project out there that someone's like oh hey could you work on this and it's like if doesn't spark my excitement then i'm probably not going to come up with something great so i stick to the things that i think are really exciting and fun to work on so what is life as an independent and you said that the company that you worked with 
uh, closed down yeah. and then you decided to become an independent. What was that, you know, what were the hurdles that you had to overcome and how did you, you know, develop yourself as an independent, you know, creator? Um, you know, it's interesting. It takes a bit to transition to working alone. And I'm sure a lot, a lot of people <laughs> learned that this past year um, mm-hmm. during the pandemic of that transitioning to working from home and not having your coworkers to chat with all the time. Um, that was a big transition for me. But at the same time, then I, um, I didn't have the constraints that went along with working in a major invention firm. I set the meetings that I take. Um, There wasn't like a meeting on the schedule that I was working towards. I chose when that meeting was going to be. I think my biggest hurdle was that I had, I already had my foot in the door in most of the mass market um, companies, but it was meetings, a lot of the smaller, more specialty market companies um, that I had to convince them, especially since I was in my early 20s at the time. Um, I had to convince them that I actually knew what I was doing, um, <laughs> which is it, surprisingly, it was a lot harder than I thought that that was going to be. Um, but it, it ended up working out well. You know, it's like I said, I picked working on the stuff that I wanted to with companies that I wanted to work on and or work with. And you know, if you really believe in what you do, it's a lot easier than if you're kind of hesitant about it. So, and I, I knew that I was enjoying what I was doing. I knew that I was great, creating great stuff. So it was just convincing people to look at my stuff and um, took several years for some companies. Other ones were a little bit more willing, but overall it's worked <laughs> out, I think. So, so tell us what the, what's the process. I'm always so curious, you know, when we hold a game in our hands at the end of the day and we're playing it, it went through so many different steps from you having an initial great idea and formulating it. What's the, what's the process kind of from start to finish until we hold it and play it with our kids? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it always starts with an idea and where that idea comes from is always different. Sometimes it's like this great name hits you and you're like, wow, that is an amazing name for a game. And then you ha- you build from there. Other times it's like I come up with like a feeling of a game or um, sometimes if I'm brainstorming, one of my favorite brainstorming techniques is to take a person that I know and be like, what would be their ideal game? Or, you know, if they were a kid, what do I think that they would like? And it's kind of a fun brainstorming technique, but it's starting off with that initial seed of an idea. And then for me, a big part of my process is um, coming up with that initial prototype that is fast and cheap and as quick to the table as possible. And um, after that, it's like, is it worth continuing it past this point? Does it need huge, huge, like big change to it? Does it need to sit on the back burner in my office for several months and then be ignored for a couple of years until it's viable? <laughs> like what, what is that next step? And so once I get it to a point that I feel pretty confident that it's a, a it's a great game or a great item. Um, then I'll do a prototype that is the most cost effective way of pitching the item. So if it needs really great illustration, I'm going to be the one that does the illustration. I'm not going to go and pay an illustrator because everything I do, I do on spec. And so it's this idea of keeping the cost down so I don't put myself out of business with what is the best way to pitch this item. So then most companies now are looking for sizzle videos um, to start, which is like a mini commercial. And so I have to shoot a sizzle video and then I usually pitch to clients. And sometimes um, you end up getting to play the game when you pitch as well. Most of the time nowadays, because everything's on Zoom um, or some one of the other services, uh, you're just pitching the sizzle video and then you can talk through the gameplay. But it depends on what kind of game it is, if you really need to go through the steps of playing it. 
And then they'll take it in and consider it. And hopefully they'll decide to license it. And usually at that point, they'll replace my artwork. They may replace the name that I've chosen. Um, it's a license agreement. So um, I make a royalty off of it. And at that point, it's kind of transitioned into their hands. And whatever company it ends up with um, makes it fit their brand as well. So there might be some tweaks that we go through, hopefully together, and mm -hmm. decide what some like minor changes are here and there to really make it part of their brand. Some, some companies have a definite feel to their games. And so to make sure that my idea fits into their current line of products is important too. So we work together on that. And then it eventually hits the shelves and hopefully makes millions. <laughs> I feel like this is like a, a, there, there's that uh, NBC show Songland where the songwriters pitch these famous artists on their song right and they they had a good idea and a great melody and it's really catchy but then the <laughs> artist has to take it and make, make it part of their their brand so to yeah. speak and work together on it to then put it out it's kind of like you're the the game songwriter <laughs> yeah That's you know your idea it, it is really interesting especially when you're talking about like um, companies here in the United States versus companies in um, overseas, especially like the Germans really like instructions that are very detailed and written out mm -hmm. and pretty much answer any question you could possibly have about the game. <laughs> Whereas Americans, it's like, we just got to get to the point because nobody's going to read these. Like, what's the <laughs> shortest way to do this? And it, it's like different with every company in each different way and it's it's a fun process because not everyone is exactly alike but yeah you have to like tweak it so that it kind of fits what they're looking for so a lot of games these days have very fancy scribbly letters underneath that has an, that has the creator's name how much is the cult of the game creator feeding into you know what a company is wants to produce you know do they want to put your name you know the, the kim you know the kim vanderbrook uh game on the on the on the cover is that becoming more of a thing these days that is an excellent question um it's interesting it is very very common in um games out of europe obviously in some countries yeah. it's mandatory but i think here in the United States, we haven't quite picked up on that in like the mass and the specialty markets. You see a little bit more of it from designers who have a, like a very, very popular game under their belts. Um, mm. I have a, a great friend in the industry um, who's been doing this far longer than I have. And she has, I mean, tons more games on the market than I, I do. And very rarely will you ever see her name on a box and it has nothing to do with the quality of her work it's amazing the problem is here in the united states we don't tend to value that or at least the companies we're working for don't tend to value that as much we might see our name on the back of the box or in the instructions where they have a little blurb but having it on the front of the box um is it is a really big deal that a lot of people are fighting for and we just haven't gotten there yet but i think that's slowly changing as the mass market and the specialty market and the hobby market kind of start to blur, which has happened, mm -hmm. I feel like, over the last several years, which is excellent. And so it'll be interesting to see if this is still something we're discussing in like five, 10 years, or if it's just a, a thing that's been resolved and we all have our names on the front of the box, because that would be really cool. Like, well, I, I almost I, feel like you're yeah. like an author of a book. And you're that's, just that's, on that's, that's where I was going, because I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm in the independent publishing self-publishing world okay. of, of right of writing and so i'm seeing a lot of those similar um struggles that a lot of trad publishers versus indie publishers versus small presses 
and we see a lot of that same you know who owns the rights of what they're doing how how do they market it how do they you know build a following around themselves like obviously if you you know if you're Stephen King the name sells the books but right. if you're Matthew Booza it's harder to do that and how do you build a following around that and I didn't know if because it gets harder and harder to produce it gets harder and harder to produce you know games with publishers that is the self-publishing route in games or creating a brand around your name is that the path that you see gaming going especially with all these small independent game producers that you you referenced yeah so with the the small independent game producers i think it's incredibly important to have the designer's name on the box and, and have that around them. I think that helps, especially when you're talking about Kickstarters and um, other crowdfunding type things. I tend to not really work in that side of the industry very much. I'm much more on that that mass specialty side where it's really still not a big deal. It might be a cute little tidbit on the box or like I said, in the, um, in the instructions on the inside. And I think part of it is that it's, First of all, it's hard to negotiate often to have your name on the front of the box because many companies don't want it. They're just against it, which hopefully will change. But um, I think part of it is that they want to build their brand and they're less interested in building your brand, um, which is unfortunate because I think that there are companies out there where you have repeat designers for them. Like uh, there are people who have designed, you know, five games for a particular brand and it would be i feel that it would be advantageous for them to to call that out and be like oh hey you bought this game from our company by this person you also want this game by the same person you know um i mean every every recommendation engine does this like amazon oh you like this author you're gonna like this author too yeah exactly or if you like this book from this author you're probably gonna like his new book that just came out well and we even do this listening to game reviews and stuff they're like oh this is a great and this is another great uh great game from matt lecock who did you know uh pandemic and of course you know it's it's one of his games so it's going to be interesting right and it's like immediately oh yeah you know who that is there's a trust there you're interested in it well especially when you're you know you're staring at a wall of games and you don't know anything about them you don't know how to play them you know it's like mm-hmm. you know I, I immediately go to the branding whether it's you know a brand that you enjoy playing like you know say like a game right game or something of that nature that we know works well with young kids you know having that name on there i think we're belaboring the point i think we all agree on this i think that would be great <laughs> well right but i mean to your point you're talking about like oh hey you really like that game right game so you're going to buy more game right games and i think that's kind of what's happening is that they want you to buy within their brand versus Mm -hmm. saying like, Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm going to jump to someone else because a lot of us pitch to all sorts of different companies. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I, I work with lots of different people in lots of different areas. It's not all children's and preschool games. Sometimes it's adult party games. And, and so it's that being spread out. And instead it's like, Mm -hmm. they want to emphasize that their brand has has a meaning to it has you know parameters to it oh you like this one then you'll definitely like this one because it's really great for preschoolers you know that type of thing one of the things like you know just going back to what i know which is the publishing thing you know the kdp amazon self self publishing route has been a great democratization of writing so we kind of take away that intermediary of the um, agents and the publishers and you can go out and create your own thing and that has you know allowed a lot of writers to become their own brand. Do you see any disruptive technology in the board game community or in the gaming or maybe kind of play toy community where you see that there may be a big change on the horizon that allows 
creators and, and inventors like yourself to do new things? Is that digital games? Is it like more print and play games, you know, Kickstarter and like other than those type of things, do you see anything changing considering how popular board games have gotten? Well, yeah, um, board games have gotten extremely popular. Um, and I, I mean, Kickstarter just changed our industry so, so much because you see games that have been kickstarted or Indiegogoed or whatever it is on mass market shelves, you know, and that if you asked me 15 years ago about that, I don't know that I would have been like, oh, yeah, that's totally going to happen <laughs> <laughs> because there have been so many gatekeepers historically. And, and now you have the larger companies looking at what's going on on Kickstarter. And that's, you know driving a lot of their thinking because they lost shelf space to these people who had these amazing Kickstarters. So I, I definitely think that that has had a massive impact on what we see on store shelves, especially mass market store shelves. I don't, I don't know if digital gaming is going to change quite so much of our industry in the future. I mean, um, when you talk about preschool games, parents still want that tactile experience that's away from a screen. Um, we still love the classic games. Classic games in this past year have sold so, so, so well. Um, and it's that nostalgia that goes along with it. So while we have these really great technologies and you can play a game, you know, on your iPad with someone on the other side of the world, there's still this nostalgia factor of picking up the dice and rolling it and moving your piece around a board or whatever um, that I don't think is going to go away. I think that that's something that has that like wholesome, you know, we're doing a puzzle at home kind of feel like that's it's away from the digital space and you're present in the moment. And I think this past year we saw more and more of that being important getting yeah, off I our see Zoom that, calls. <laughs> yeah, I see that more as a more complicated thing. Just like what you said there, the games have always been very tactile. Yeah. You know, even like in the reading community where we've had this kind of tension between, you know, digital e-readers like on a Kindle or even on, you know, I read a lot of my books on my phone. Um, there's still that that lure to the the print book. People still just want yeah. that. And it's, and it's all, it, a lot yeah. of people are saying, oh, it's going to go away, but you know, I'm staring at a thousand books right now. So it's like, you know, it's not anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. It's not going to go anytime soon. So yeah, I, I probably agree with you. I think it's more, I think there's probably more disruption on, as you said, on the funding mechanism on yeah. the creation of it than it, anything. I also think that the idea of allowing the public to choose what they want to put their money behind was really a really big thing because before you're talking about there's someone at a company, a manager at a company who's making this decision, who's then pitching it to the buyer, who's making the decision of what's going to make it on the shelves. And it's like Kickstarter went and kind of pushed past those people and were like, no, 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 no. Look, these the public wants this made. Look at how much money they're putting behind it. And because of that, it gets made. It's also changed how much um how much goes into games. Like there used to be this like top price cap of what you would see at a mass market store for a game. It might not have been more than $25, might not have been $30, but now you see games that are so much more expensive because people like having those extra bits and those extra pieces and the really quality product and the really the firm. Twilight, the Twilight Imperiums of the world. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. 
hundred dollar board games. Well, yeah, and I think it's interesting too. You know, yeah. on Kickstarter, those those folks have really got a hustle if they want to yeah. do a successful yeah, yeah. Kickstarter. I mean, I just am remembering like my childhood and even with mass market games, I see them now, you know, you may see a commercial forum or you may see like an ad in Facebook or something, but those Kickstarters, I mean, they've got super high quality videos. They yeah. have lots of different great graphics, pictures. They're talking about all the rules. They're really going into it. They've sent out play review copies. And so they've got videos of, you know, video game or board game reviewers playing yeah. it and loving it. They've got all these extra, you know, things that you're going to unlock as you get to different levels in the mm -hmm. campaign. Mm -hmm. And then they're going to, you know, they're, the vision is so much farther and broader than what you would get out of another mass market print of a monopoly type, you know, a roll and move type of game. Yeah. Um, so I, I have a question regarding um, the industry um, interacting with the internet. Um, we saw this with movies that uh, we used to read reviews in newspapers and that's how we Siskel and Ebert said either thumbs up or thumbs down. Well, that was a show, Booza. That was a, that was a show we watched avidly I, on like, I know, NBC. I know, but a lot of these kids, you know, that are listening, they don't know about this stuff. <laughs> they, the Siskel and Ebert show? That was a big show. <laughs> We're old people here. Come on. The, um, but now they're watching videos on YouTube. They're on, you know, Dice Tower, Board Game yeah. Geek, things of that nature. How much um, does that community that is all of a sudden becoming this kind of quality um, social proof element within the games, uh, the game board game world, how does that influence you or the publisher when they're producing? Do, are they thinking in different terms now? Or are they trying to court those individuals to do play testing before they release the game? Is there, is there a different parameter there now that there's this intense review mechanism on every game? You know, I think it would depend on who the publisher is and kind of what space they're working on. I don't know that mass market quite cares as much as maybe the specialty market does. Um, but you're right. I mean, there there is this amazing amount of uh, feedback on these games as they're coming out that really is was not there, you know, two decades ago, decade and a half ago. And it's made it easier, I think, for game purchasers to go and be like, well, let me find out more about this and see it. You can watch the whole thing being played, which is is really different. And I think that continues to kind of um, differentiate the mass market and the hobby market, because in the mass market, you have maybe a 30 second commercial uh, hmm. or 15 seconds something online five seconds before somebody skips the ad to go on to whatever their <laughs> video is going to watch to get the idea across. And so something like a pie face does really well in, in that mass market space because they only need that much time to hmm. get across what the game is. Whereas when you're talking about something that's more in depth, um, you can see it played through. You want to see the strategy. It's, it gives you more time to explain what's going on. Whereas, you know, some games that are out, many games that are out there, you couldn't explain all the fabulous nuance that goes along with it and makes it so amazing in that 30 seconds. So it really, um, I think, has improved the, the hobby and the specialty market, whereas I don't think it's impacted the um, mass market, except when you're talking about like unboxing videos, <laughs> which are a kind of a different animal altogether, um, as I feel that those are a bit more like sensationalized. I think they're aimed more at kids and um, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily see kids watching like Dice Tower reviews. <laughs> <to get information. laughs> so Do it's you see just yeah. different channels. Cool. Yeah. 
Do you see any trends going forward? I know you said you like to create games that you're interested in, um, but is there any trends that you see in the industry? Like what type of games are becoming more popular or certain mechanics that you see be more successful that, you know, might interest people who are listening to this? You know, in, in general, I think that for the longest time, we are kind of like, dumb it down, dumb it down, you know, get, get that the, as easy as possible out there kind of game. Um, and then something happened and probably a bit of Kickstarter, a bit of all this that we're talking about. And now we're still, we're pushing more towards having more strategy in all games. You know, it used to be that we would joke that um, the games market was kind of like a toy with like a rule and we're getting away from that. And now it's back to being a game. I mean, if you look at the the games that you saw in like the 1960s and 70s, most of the time they were games with rules um, that you might have had to read. <laughs> and <laughs> then we reached this point where you pretty much saw your you know, short commercial, and that was all you needed to know how to play the game. And so it really was very toyetic. Um, and now I think we're definitely going back towards that things need to have rules and have some strategy. And even kids games need to have a bit more strategy than they've had in the past. And I'm absolutely thrilled to see that. Uh, I also think that, you know, we go through these phases, like roll and writes very hot. And, you know, before that, it was, you know, something else. And, but, you know, I can go back through my notes and you can see these moments in time where certain types of games were hot. And I think we just go through that kind of like a cycle. So give it another 10 years or so and we'll be back to rolling rights. Yeah, va vampires are popular every 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. I was thinking the same thing. Bell, like vampires, it's the bell zombies, bottoms, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. It always goes back. Yeah, now that grunge is classic rock. Yeah, I understand that. <laughs> hey, we love rolling rights. <laughs> yeah, so. I'm, I'm just glad so, we're past the poop phase because the year that I went to Toy Fair and like everyone had a poop product, I was like, oh no, this is... So yeah, those really gross games, sometimes I'm like... I don't want to play this. As, <laughs> as a, a stay-at-home dad with a two-year-old, I don't want to play any poop games. I play poop <laughs> games all the time. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> kids just like love the <laughs> the gross humor, and you're just like, oh. Okay. Oh, we know. We yeah. know. Yeah. We totally know. So, so on the design side, um, you know, we talked about you getting an idea and and doing the design. Right now, Haba has a big kids design contest. Yeah, and, you know, they send you a bag of miscellaneous parts from different games, which yep. I think is cool. And then you do a design. Uh, so for parents out there whose kids are in the middle of trying to design their own game with these components or who, you know, parents who want to help design games to teach their kids certain things, like how, how should they approach this? How do they, how do they start? Is it just start working on the math? Does it start, you know, playing with the pieces and think about something cool that could happen with them? Like, you know, is it theme first or mechanics first, I guess, maybe that's a battle between the two. It is kind of a battle between the two because I think you can approach it at either direction. You have a really great theme that you want to explore, go for it. If you have this idea of how something's going to play and you it's really very abstract until you decide that it's going to be a hamburger game or something, okay, great. Um, either way to go is perfectly fine. I think um, the thing to focus on is really like what are the decisions you're making every turn? Is there a decision you're making every turn? How are the players impacting the game? 
and, and what is the goal at the end? Sometimes it's easy to start with like, okay, these are the pieces we have. This is what a turn looks like. And this is our goal. And then expand from there. Um, I really like to think what the player interaction is going to be. Nobody wants to sit at a game and just like lose turn after turn after turn. Um, similarly, nobody wants to sit at a game for 45 minutes. That's the same thing over and over. It's just, it's like the Uno game that goes on a bit too long. Mm-hmm. You know, my daughter made us play War the other day, and I didn't remember from my childhood just how awful that game is. It's right? the longest, most boring game. Right. Like Candyland could kind of be painless if it goes quickly, but it's as soon yeah. as somebody draws the card to move all the way back to the start, you're basically restarting the game. And that's right. when it becomes... weren't enjoying in the first place. <laughs> and so it's like you're moving backwards instead of forwards. And so keeping that that all of that in mind is hard to do at the same time but um it, those are all important tidbits because in the end it's not necessarily if it's the most amazing theme or has the most amazing name but it's really if you're enjoying the moment that you're in while you're playing it i tend to think also that a great game means that i'm still having fun even though i'm losing and even mm-hmm. after i've lost i would like to play again and so those are kind of the the bars that i set out there if my play testers are like okay, I totally lost, but let's do this again. That is Mm -hmm. such a great sign that you're on the right track. And the other thing I would say is tweak. You know, rarely is my first idea ever perfect. And I've been doing this for, like I said, almost two decades. Like rarely am I just get it right off the bat. There's always little changes along the way. And sometimes my changes are wrong and I go backwards or sometimes I try a couple different things. But um, realizing that, you failed <laughs> and you need to go backwards is totally okay. And I know that kids sometimes have a hard time seeing that because it doesn't feel like you're moving forward, but sometimes it's a really important part of the process is to kind of admit defeat and be like, okay, we got to scrap a little bit of this and start over. And that's a totally okay thing to happen. So when thinking about designing a game, there's lots of different kinds of mechanics. We've got the roll and move, which is our favorite Candyland <laughs> version. <laughs> and there's deck builders and there's there's all the different types of area control and uh, resource allocation and all these different things. What's what's your favorite mechanic? What, what do you like the most and what game do you think really shows that off uh, the best, the best way? Um, honestly, I don't have a favorite. Um, I, I'm, I like almost all games, so it's really hard to choose game agnostic. I, yeah. I, you know, it's hard to choose a favorite because I think that there's something excellent about every little bit of it. You know, um, I'm happy playing all sorts of types of games. So I, I don't know that I could necessarily pick one. I'm not, um, overly influenced, by one particular type of mechanic. I think I like to jump around, um, which might be why I actually <laughs> do well in this business is that I, I get bored of one thing and move on to something else very quickly. So, you know, I, don't, I can't stick to one type of mechanic when I'm working on things. Same things when I'm playing things. Like as soon as we're done mm-hmm. with one thing, I want to move on to something that's completely different. Um, and so it's more that I find games that it's like, wow, they just did that really well. And, you know, Um, I think the games that I appreciate the most are the ones that have a beautiful simplicity to it, uh, Mm. because I know that that's very, very hard to do. Uh, 
in games where you have thicker rule books, you have lots of these like kind of if then but rules um, and you have the space to do it. But if you can go and condense a game down to just a few rules and really make a game that you can play over and over and over and are successful with, to me, that's that's a lot of hard work. And I really see the the beauty in that. So um, like a game like Patchwork. One that I one that I like is um, uh, Lost Cities. Yeah, has just that simplicity. The card there. game. Yeah, the card game. Not the law. Yeah, right, the, right. the card game. Yeah, I'm. I, I always, I always found that to be just very elegant. But mm-hmm. even as simple as like, can't stop. I mean, you're just rolling dice, but there's this addictiveness to playing, and mm-hmm. it's so few rules that it, it's got this beauty to it that I, I really appreciate. And you know, it's like I want to stand up and applaud that inventor designer. And at yeah. the same time, I'm also like, man, I wish I invented that. You know, a little bit. Of yeah, it's like Sky Joe. Sky Joe's that way too. And roll yes. for it. You just you find yourself just playing game after game because yeah. the rules weren't that complicated. But to be successful at it, it was was tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cool. And to be able to do that, like like you said, with that small amount of rules, and to make me want to play it, you know, fifty times is amazing. Truly amazing. Do do you have any? So a lot of our listeners, we tend to be we're secular podcasts focusing on homeschooling, and we do a lot of game schooling, Um, and so we try to blend in um, games into the education, and not necessarily games that teach you things, but games that emphasize things that can be part of a larger curriculum. Well, and I I think both. I think it's I think it's games that are meant to be educational, and the inherent educational value found in games yeah just about every game has got something to learn yeah do you have any elementary games like maybe what are your top three games for younger learners how young are we talking here (laughs) Hmm. i would say let's let's take out the preschooler so let's say like six six year old and 10 yeah k to two k to three okay well you know I actually really love the Mel and Ryan games. I, I recently discovered those with um, my daughter who's six and like we've been playing Clumsy Thief in a candy shop and it's the beautiful artwork mixed with obviously math, which is like what their entire brand is about. That's gone over really well in my house, um, which I enjoy. And there's a definite learning aspect to that one. Um, on the opposite side, um, A Pet's Life. Uh, I'm not sure if you know that one. It's uh, by IDW Games. And it's this fun game about placing pets that are circular tokens on a board. It's easy to play. Weirdly enough, it says that it's for ages 10 and up. And my daughter started playing it when she was five. There's no reading involved or anything. But there's this great aspect of having foresight because the game is scored in two parts you place your piece Mm. and you score immediately and then you also have to think about where you've placed it because you'll score at the end so there's this tiny bit of pre-planning to it and you can still win if you do a great job in the first half but it would be really better for you if you did a great job on on both parts of the game it plays Mm. super quickly and to me a game like that where it's very not obviously it's not it's not math it's not science it's not any of those things, but it talks about, or the game itself is a little bit about planning and thinking ahead and all of those things, a little bit of strategy to it in a very simplistic way has been great for her to improve her game playing skills. And so that I, that's actually probably one of our favorite games right now to play regularly. Um, and it has unicorns in it. So... <laughs> 
always, yeah, well, our, our daughter would be idea. all over that. Um, <laughs> how much, so how much does um, like child psychology, some of the deeper philosophical, you know, scientific methods of learning and play and things of that nature, how much does that factor into the creation of the game for you? Or is it mainly just creating a game and play testing? Like, for example, we were, we were doing, we're doing some work to do some unit studies and we were reading a book and the book was very simple and we kind of just chuckled. Oh, we could have written that. Uh, We, you, you chuckled. You're like, I chuckled. I I could have written that. Um, It it was a children's classic. Yeah. And loved the world over. Yeah. And then we, we, we pulled up the kind of the, there was a study guide that kind of went with the book that the publisher produced or the author produced for teachers who are teaching it. And they went into some really great depth on why we chose the wording we chose, why these, why these, you know, owls acted the way they acted. And, you know, it had a deeper depth that kind of just showed like on an iceberg right on the top. Do you have any of that that factors into your games in any way? Uh, For some of them I do. Um, So I I did a game for Peaceable Kingdom called Chugachu, and it's a game for two plus. So we're talking really young here. But a big mm-hmm. part of it was trying to introduce kids to the idea of gaming and going through things that they naturally do in ways they can in- naturally interact with their parents. Because a big part of their two plus line is having moms and dads learn how to play with their kids. So it's not just the kid learning how to play, but also an adult learning how to play with a child. And so part of the game is that once they make a match, then they get to choose a tile to fill into one of their box cars. And kids at that age really like being able to make their own choices and make their own decision. And so emphasizing, it's totally up to you to choose whatever you want. There is no right and wrong answer here, but this is a great way for then the parent to be like, oh, well, why did you choose that one? What do you think they're doing in there? What do you, and having that dialogue um, did come from some research that was done um, about how to interact again, bring parents and kids together and really have meaningful conversations. Another one that I did was um, Heads Talk, Tails Walk, and that's a, a think fun game right now. And again, oh, it's, you did that? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm going to fangirl. Oh, we loved that. <laughs> we gave it to a little girl for her birthday pre-pandemic and the kids played it and they just couldn't stop laughing. They loved it. They absolutely <laughs> loved it. Right. And it's it's silly. And so it has that fun aspect to it, but it's also not expecting them to be successful in doing the ridiculous thing. So, you you know, as you know, you say the funny noise that an animal would say and then you have to walk like another one. But again, sometimes for three year olds, their brains aren't at the point that they can make the noise and do the gross motor skill at the same time. They'll do one and then the other. And, and t- it takes a while for them to be able to get it together so that they can do both motions at the same time. So it's this working different parts of the brain in a way that it doesn't matter if you can't do it at the beginning when you start playing, but hopefully somewhere along the way you start learning it. And the entire thing is just ridiculous in a way that makes it a lot of fun. Yeah. That's really interesting that you say that because when we first brought it out and the girls tried it, they couldn't do both of them. Right. They could, they kept saying, this is so hard. And we were said, well, it's just a silly game. Just, you know, have fun with it. It doesn't matter if it's the perfect dinosaur walk and chicken clock at the right, same, you know, right. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> and, you know, but they really did kind of like, I don't know, I don't know if it was like left brain, right brain thing, but they, they really had a difficult time doing both together and had to kind of, in some ways make peace with not being perfect. 
at either yeah. one of them in order to get both of them accomplished. <laughs> right, but hopefully they laughed throughout the yeah, Oh my yeah, god, yeah. we all laughed right. and they they had a blast but it was actually we thought of it, you know, when I saw it, I thought gosh, this is so silly. This is going to be just uproariously funny and it was, but I didn't really realize the skill that was going to be involved behind it. Mm-hmm. That just didn't factor in and it but it was absolutely there. Yeah, and and like I said, the great part is that you don't have to have the skill to win the game. It, you know, like you don't have to have that amazing pairing of your your cluck and your dinosaur walk <laughs> together <laughs> to be successful in the gameplay. So the winning the winning in, in that one is is the playing. Yeah. You know, you're you're winning by getting to play and, and do all these silly things. I think that's really right. Great. You could be losing do, do- it and still enjoying it. <laughs> do, do you have any other games maybe i'll walk through us like a little bit of your catalog and and uh, help people understand like where they can learn more about you and all that type of stuff oh yeah sure so um i think you're going to link to my website below i absolutely, also absolutely. Um, yeah. run a blog called thegameisle.com aisle like an aisle you walk through in the store not like an aisle you're stuck on a desert with only two games for life um oh my gosh that would be we need to play that whoa, whoa, game she 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 Kim just walked into a, a, right. a trap. What are your, what are your two islands? What are your two games? I could never choose. I, you know, honestly, I would probably be like, I'll choose just like a bucket of dice and a deck of cards because then I could just come up with games for the rest of my life. Uh, spoken like a true inventor. Oh, I don't. Uh, I don't need a book. I just need a pad of paper and a pencil. <laughs> right. It would be nice if I got a sharpie marker, or better yet, like a wet erase marker, so I could draw on the cards. But yeah, yeah. So um, I've done a lot of Peaceable Kingdom games for little kids, um, Button, Button, Belly Button. Um, let's see. I've also done games like Chill Out with Game Right, which is a ton of fun. Um, I really like that one. We 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 love Peaceable Kingdom and Game Right both. I, I don't think we've had a single one of either of their games that weren't a success in our house. Yeah. Right. Um, I did Blue Plate Scramble for Peaceable Kingdom, too. That's a little bit older. Um, mm, but that's a, that one yet. that's a fun one too. Um, that, you know, doing cooperative games is like a, a kind of a different animal because you have mm-hmm. to make everyone excited together to win together. And, you know, it's just, a, it's a different type of mechanic. Um, and then I I've done games with like, um, my oldest games with winning moves and that's a uh, categories categories, which is like a party game, um, mm-hmm. a spinoff of categories trying to look up. I, I had, party game of the year in finland with a game that's not out here in the united states but that was a pretty big deal what was it like to uh win party game of the year did, did they uh did they roll out did you go to helsinki or did, did i get to like fly over there and party with them yeah. no yeah no <laughs> that's anticlimactic it, it is kind of anti but you know it is a big deal to think about it for a, com- a yeah. country that you know spends a lot of the year in darkness and plays a lot of games it's <laughs> It's, it's pretty serious <laughs> it is it is it I'm is making, quite I'm making a deep impact with these so, people so what what do you think out of all the games that you've created and all the things that you've done what's the thing that you're most proud of that you're that you're like that's the one that i'm i'm, I'm hanging my hat on i'm so glad that i got to be a part of that and came up with that that's a great question i love all of my babies <laughs> no you want to okay so i'll say that it was probably the first game i ever invented because it really opened so many doors for me along the way and um it's a game called cover to cover it is not out it was out with hasbro they licensed it on the spot when i pitched it which is unheard of and frankly downright amazing 
But because I had that success right at the beginning of my career, um, when I went off on my own, it was a lot easier to get my foot in the door and convince people that, yes, in fact, I do know what I'm doing. I'm not just some crazy person that snuck in off the street to Toy Fair and wants to talk to you. (laughs) You know, I'm also I'm also proud of games like um, Raccoon Rumpus has been out for more than a decade now. That's with Educational Insights and um, the spinoff Koala Capers, you know, those. I'm just proud of because I've had so many notes from people being like, oh my gosh, we love it. Every time we play it with the grandparents, you know, it just makes all of us smile when somebody rolls the underpants, you know, and, (laughs) and truthfully, it's like, there's monetary success in life, right? You know, you sell a ton of Mm -hmm. books and you're like, yeah, look at me bringing in checks. But there's also like this other side of success, which is, you know, like knowing that I'm part of kids, happy memories. You know, I think about the games that I loved as a kid and every once in a while I meet one of those inventors and I'm just like, oh, I love your game. I play with it all the time with my family. I have these great memories of playing with my like grandparents or whatever. And it, it's knowing that I'm part of someone's life in that way that actually makes me really happy, which, you know, is different than like seeing the big check being like, yeah, <laughs> it's just a different kind of joy. Checks are nice, though. Checks are are super nice. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) I feel like games are games are events in ways that Mm -hmm. other toys are not. Right. I mean, I mean, I remember it being like, "Oh, grandma's coming over. We're gonna gonna have a game today, or it's a family game night, or we're going camping. What games are we taking?" It was something that you that you planned. Just memory building. It's memory building. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, the number of times I remember us playing games and Mm -hmm. as a child, uh, it's it's I mean, I have too many to remember. And that's I think our our kids are going to be the same. And it makes me happy to see, you know, how into it they are, because it's such great family bonding time that not only are they learning and and all of that stuff that they're going to use all these skills for life you know, but, but all of the memories they're making too, is just really great. I agree. I also think it provides a, a framework for how a parent or how a grandparent or a cousin or a friend or whatever it is plays with each other. You know, when you start a game of pretend or whatever it is that you're going to play with a kid, Play-Doh, there's no set middle beginning of end. And I think sometimes adults in general struggle with that. Um, whereas a game you sit down and you play together and there's this, beginning middle and end you you know when the the play ends and what goes on along the way and you enjoy this experience and it's kind of a, a prepackaged moment um and i think that that makes games this like really solid family experience because you kind of know what you're getting into when you crack that box open and it's like almost guaranteed memories in it whereas if you are pulling out crayons with your kid, you'll still get those memories and who knows where it'll go, but you could also spend five minutes doing it, or you could spend two hours doing it. And it, it takes a little bit more, I think, um, effort from an adult to get to that point. Your, your homeschool parents probably are like, yeah, no, she's, she's totally wrong, but, but it's amazing. Oh, I, I totally see this. I totally see this when yeah. my daughter's like, well, we could play a game or let's go do this other, you know, insert open-ended thing, Play-Doh or play imagination or whatever. And I, I struggle sometimes because I'm like, yeah, that game, I know that's a 15 minute game. Right. And um, <laughs> we, cause you know, I don't know how long her interest is going to last in something else. Yeah. And, 
well, that, it's hard and, to embrace the open-ended thing sometimes. Exactly. And, and especially with like busy parents where you look at it and you're like, oh, this game should take us 15 minutes. We can squeeze in 15 minutes before we have to do this or before I have to hop back on this call or do this or do that. And it, so it's like a guaranteed amount of time that you're going to set aside and play with your child. And no one's going to be disappointed at the end because you've, you've fulfilled that obligation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully they've, they've learned a, a great deal along the way. This has been so great having you. Uh, before we let you go, just one final thoughts about parents playing games with their kids. What what kind of approach should parents take? What advice would you have for how they can get the most out of playing with their kiddos with some of these great games? You know, I, I would say um, pick a game that the kid is excited about. I know we have lots of games that I enjoy from my childhood, but that may not be the game that your kid is going to enjoy. I also think that allowing kids to go through and make their own decisions and make their own mistakes is very important. But at the same time, um, you can take a moment to explain to them why one choice might be better than another choice. I don't necessarily believe in throwing games. I think that losing is part of the the learning process. But if you choose games that both of you kind of have a, a chance to win at, that builds some, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like you're, you're building up your child to get to that point where they're okay with losing at some of those harder games. I would also say mm -hmm. play a variety of things. Playing the same thing over and over is boring. Um, but yeah, I, really, I think that a lot of it should be child directed. That's just me personally. I know there's lots of answers I could have given there, but I like it when my daughter picks the game and we sit down and we play together and she's the one that's excited about it. I think that changes the whole mood versus me being like, yeah, let's bring out this one for my childhood. And she's like, oh, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Well, Thank hey, you. thanks for having me. It's been fun talking. Thanks so much for joining us today and making us a part of your homeschool journey. Please engage with us on social media. Join our Homeschool Together podcast group on Facebook and find us at Homeschool Together podcast on Instagram. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions, and recommendations. Until next time. Happy homeschooling!